Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish, which is brought to you by BetterHelp and FabFitFun. I want to shout out Lauren and Kinsey, my newest Patreon supporters. Thank you, ladies, so much for your support. Today's case is the second episode of three in my series on sports-related murders. Two weeks from the date of this recording will be the third and final episode in the series, so stay tuned for that. Now, let's get into today's case. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. On November 26 of 2007, around 1.30 in the morning, five young men approached a $900,000 home in Palmetto Bay, Florida, a somewhat upscale suburb about 15 miles south of Miami. They had driven over 150 miles, all the way from Fort Myers. The men departed on this long drive with one intention, to rob the lavish home of its valuables. The robbery, however, would not go as planned, and numerous lives were forever changed as a result. Join me as I walk you through the tragic murder of beloved football star Sean Taylor. John Michael Maurice Taylor was born on April 1st of 1983 in Miami, Florida, to Donna Jr. and Pedro Taylor, who went by Pete. His parents met at church in 1982, right after Pete had joined the Homestead Police Department. The couple dated for a few months before splitting up, as they believed they didn't really have anything in common. When Donna realized she was pregnant, she didn't tell Pete, instead choosing to raise their child by herself. Donna left Florida and moved temporarily to Connecticut, where she had some extended family, and this is where she gave birth to her son, Sean. In April of 1983, Pete was playing basketball with some friends when his uncle came by and told him he needed to speak with him. It was at this time that Pete found out he was a father. He traveled to Connecticut to meet his son for the very first time. Pete was thrilled to be involved in Sean's life. Donna stayed in Connecticut until Sean was about five months old, and then she and Sean moved back down to Miami. Sean was the second of seven children. Donna had a daughter, Monica, who was several years older than Sean and from a previous relationship. Donna later had two more children, Sasha and Jamal, with another man named Dwayne Johnson. Sean's father, Pete, later married a woman named Josephine, and the two of them had a son named Joseph and a daughter named Jasmine. Their marriage, however, wouldn't last. After Pete and Josephine divorced, Pete had another son named Gabriel with his second wife, Simone. Pete was later hired as the police chief for Florida City, a position he still holds today. Growing up, Sean lived with his mother, his great-grandmother, and his three half-siblings in Homestead, Florida, about 40 miles south of Miami. Sean saw his father regularly, and the two of them had a good relationship. According to Pete, Sean went back and forth between his parents, living primarily with his mother, Donna. When Sean was 10 years old, he came to live with his father and stepmother, Josephine, and his two half-siblings in Richmond Heights. Pete's mother, Constance, 
lived right next door to them, and Sean loved spending time with his grandmother. At some point, Sean's younger half-sister, Sasha, and younger half-brother, Jamal, also left Donna's home and went to live with their father in Fort Myers, Florida. It was obvious from an early age that Sean was a gifted athlete. When he was little, his sister, Monica, would take him to football games while Donna was working. Monica would come home and tell her mother how good Sean was at football. This happened so often that Donna made time to see her son play. Sure enough, Sean stood out. He was the best player on the field, and everyone cheered when he got the ball. Sean was also very fast. At Richmond Heights Middle School, Sean tried out for the track team and became one of the best 100-meter and 200-meter runners in the entire state of Florida. Sean attended Miami Killian High School during his freshman year, where he played football and basketball. Sean was a star safety and running back on a very talented football team that would eventually have three players, including Sean, who made it to the NFL. During Sean's sophomore year in high school, he played safety on the varsity football team. The team made it to the playoffs for the first time in years, but ended up losing in the first round. A multi-talented athlete, Sean also made the varsity basketball team during his sophomore year. Sean was known for being particularly relentless on defense. Former Killian teammate Darren Weisman said, going up against Sean, well, he just wanted to make you look bad. He didn't let anything come easy. You were never comfortable with him guarding you. For that reason alone, you wanted him on your team. But on the offensive end, he brought his A-game all the time because he was unselfish and just wanted to win more than look good or score. One of the reasons that Sean did so well in sports was that along with the talent in which he was likely born, he had an amazing work ethic which was instilled in him by his father. Pete Taylor used to have all of his children work out constantly, and he'd drive them to continue improving at everything they did. Some of Sean's friends started joining in on the workouts Pete would do with Sean, and they began noticing improvement in their performance right away. T.J. Holton, who lived across the street from the park where Pete trained Sean and his friends, saw them working out one day and decided to join them. T.J. was a year older than Sean when they met and was a sophomore at South Dade High School. Soon after they met and began working out together, T.J. moved to his aunt's house, which was just down the street from Sean, so they were able to see each other all the time. T.J. and Sean would remain friends until the day Sean died. Unbeknownst to Sean, in December of his sophomore year, his father had submitted an application for him to attend Gulliver Prep High School in Pinecrest, about 10 miles south of Miami. In Pete's home, academics always came first. Pete pushed his children to do well in school and rewarded them for getting good grades. Pete believed that graduating from Gulliver Prep would help Sean get into a good college, so he applied on his son's behalf without saying anything until he was sure that Sean would get accepted. Sean was accepted to Gulliver Prep and began attending school in the spring semester of his sophomore year. Many of the students at Gulliver come from wealthy families and tuition wasn't cheap. George P. Bush, son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, attended school at Gulliver, as did Eduardo Saverin, the co-founder of Facebook. Julio Iglesias Jr. and his brother Enrique also attended Gulliver Prep. Students at the school wear uniforms and a lot of them drive expensive cars. 
Sean was from a middle-class home but was able to get a scholarship because of his athletic abilities. During his time at Gulliver, Sean played football, basketball, and ran track. In the classroom, Sean was a good student. Even though he was in sports all year round and took a lot of honors courses, he maintained good grades. Sean's father and stepmother lived in a safe neighborhood, but directly to the north and south of them were high-crime areas that occasionally brought violence to their streets. When Sean was a teenager, he was playing basketball at the park and got into an argument with a player on the other team. Things got heated, and the other player put a gun to Sean's head and pulled the trigger. Fortunately, nothing happened. The gun jammed, and Sean was able to knock the gun out of the player's hand and run home before he could fix it and shoot at him again. With a police chief for a father, Sean's life was a stable one. An athlete himself, Pete led Sean and his friends through daily workouts that began in the early morning hours. They would meet at the Taylor home at 5 a.m. sharp, and they stuck to it because Pete promised that if they did, the work would make them better athletes. The workouts were intense and helped them improve so much that one of Sean's friends later said that if it wasn't for the workouts that Pete put them through, he never would have gotten a scholarship to play college football. Sean's time at Gulliver wasn't all about sports and education. He ended up meeting a young woman who would change his life forever. Jackie Garcia, niece of the actor Andy Garcia, was a fellow student at Gulliver Prep. After meeting Jackie, Sean was smitten. Sean eventually asked Jackie to prom, and she said yes. They dated off and on throughout high school until their relationship got serious in college. The couple eventually got engaged and remained together until Sean's untimely death. Sean was tall and large in stature. On defense, he patrolled the middle of the football field looking for whoever had the ball to separate the two of them. People from Gulliver still talk about the game where Sean hit an opponent so hard the other player's face mask came off his helmet, metal screws and all. Although he hit the player this hard, it wasn't considered a dirty hit. Sean was also the punt returner and kick returner for the team and had several returns for touchdowns during the two years he played at Gulliver Prep. His senior year during the 2000 football season, Sean rushed for over 1,300 yards and scored 44 touchdowns, breaking the Florida high school record formerly held by Hall of Fame running back Emmett Smith. Gulliver Prep won its state championship in football that year, finishing with a record of 14-1, the lone loss coming in the first game of the season, which was the only game in which Sean didn't play. Sean's size, speed, and physical abilities were matched by his competitiveness. He refused to be outworked by anyone. During the state championship game his senior year, Gulliver Prep's opponent was Mariana High School. Their star running back, Rashard Dudley, had just that week been named the 2A State Player of the Year in Florida, and he'd won the award over Sean Taylor. Given his competitive nature, Sean was not happy about losing the award to Dudley. The Gulliver Prep faithful fans weren't happy about it either. They brought signs to the game saying Sean Taylor the true 2A Player of the Year, and today you find out why. Sean did not let them down. He was all over the field on offense and defense. Sean rushed for one touchdown and caught two touchdown passes on offense. On defense, he had nine tackles and a number of hits on opponents, including one on Dudley that broke up a pass which would have put Mariana inside Gulliver Prep's five-yard line. 
Although Dudley played a great game, Sean Taylor played better, leading Gulliver Prep to a 31-21 win against Mariana High School. After the intense game, Sean went up to Dudley and shook his hand. Sean was injured for part of his junior year, and due to that, he didn't put up mind-blowing stats like he did as a senior. Because of that, he had not been heavily recruited. A lot of big-time college programs weren't familiar with Sean Taylor at that time. After completing his senior year of football, all of that changed. Now, everyone wanted him to come to their school to play football. Some recruiting services had Sean ranked as the number one high school football player in the state. Florida and Texas annually dominate the top 100 high school football player lists, so being considered the best player in Florida meant that Sean was one of the best players in the country. The Miami Herald newspaper had him ranked as number one football prospect in Miami-Dade County. The Gainesville Sun ranked him as the top football prospect in the entire state of Florida. When it came time to decide on a school, Sean decided to stay home in the city that he loved. He went on to play for the University of Miami Hurricanes. He would be joined by his friend and teammate at Gulliver Prep, quarterback Buck Ortega, who threw the two touchdown passes to Sean in the championship game. Buck would also later play in the NFL for a few years. As if it couldn't get any better for Sean, his girlfriend Jackie would also attend the University of Miami on a soccer scholarship. Their senior year, she had been named one of two Florida High School Soccer Players of the Year. There is so much pressure and stress that comes along with everyday life, and that stress can interfere with our happiness. It can be very helpful to seek counseling when these issues arise, but meeting with someone on their schedule and at their location isn't always convenient. That's where BetterHelp Online Counseling comes in. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, relationships, trauma, LGBTQ matters, and more. And of course, anything you share is completely confidential. BetterHelp is unique in that they make counseling services convenient by offering counseling online through video chat, and you can chat with your counselor via text message too. If you aren't happy with your counselor for any reason, simply request a new one at any time at no charge. Not only can you receive counseling from the convenience of your own home, BetterHelp services will not break the bank. Murderish listeners can get an extra discount by going to betterhelp.com murderish and entering promo code murderish. That's betterhelp.com murderish and use promo code murderish for 10% off your first month. At the University of Miami, Sean played football and ran track and was a standout athlete in both sports. Sean was named the Big East Conference Defensive Player of the Year, as well as first-team All-American. In the spring of 2004, Sean placed fourth for the Hurricane track team in the Gatorade Invitational in the 100-meter dash. Sean was a star, and the NFL took notice. Given his performance and rank in college football, Sean decided to forego his senior year of eligibility at the University of Miami and declared himself eligible for the 2004 NFL Draft. The Washington Redskins are a storied NFL franchise, originating in 1932 when they were called the Boston Braves. The next year, they changed their name to the Boston Redskins. In 1937, the team moved to Washington, D.C. 
In 2004, Dan Snyder, the widely unpopular owner of the team, had just made a move that Redskins fans were excited about. Snyder managed to coax the legendary coach Joe Gibbs out of retirement to rebuild the team. Gibbs quickly turned the Redskins into a powerhouse, leading the team to its first Super Bowl championship in his second season. In the 12 seasons that Gibbs coached the Redskins, they made the playoffs eight times, five times advancing to the NFC Championship, four times to the Super Bowl. Gibbs retired at the age of 52 after the 1992 season. None of the coaches who succeeded Gibbs would come close to matching his success. After making the playoffs eight of 12 years during Gibbs' tenure, the Redskins only made it once during the next 12 years. After retiring from football, Gibbs went into the auto racing business with his sons. Gibbs, a known workaholic, was exhausted by this time. He was known to sleep in his office three or four nights a week during the season. The long hours he was putting in began to take their toll. Needless to say, fans were both shocked and delighted on January 7th of 2004 when the Redskins announced that Joe Gibbs was coming back to coach the Redskins again. After signing a five-year contract, Gibbs promised this time around he wouldn't work to the point of exhaustion. A deeply religious man, Gibbs was a no-nonsense, fatherly type of coach, a man known as someone for which the players would do anything. Expectations were high. Fans believed Coach Gibbs would get their beloved Redskins back to the Super Bowl. On April 24th of 2004, while most potential top draft picks come to the arena where the NFL draft is held, Sean Taylor decided he wanted to stay in Florida with his family and friends. Most athletes enjoy attending the draft as it offers them a chance to be doted upon by the NFL and an opportunity to appear on stage, but Sean was different. Instead, choosing to celebrate at his friend's house in the Florida Keys where he could be amongst his loved ones. By the time the draft started, there were over 150 people there to hear Sean's name called for a lucky NFL team. Ever since he left his mother's house to live with his father, Sean's primary goal in life was to make it big so he could help his family financially. Sean's dream was about to come true. As Sean and his loved ones watched the draft in Miami, it happened. The Washington Redskins selected Sean with the fifth pick, making him the highest draft picked for a safety since 1991. Sean's entry into the NFL was a bit bumpy right after he was drafted. A few days after the draft, Sean fired his agent, Drew Rosenhaus. Then, during the team's minicamp, Sean's teammate, LeVar Arrington, who had a reputation of hazing rookies, shoved a pie made of shaving cream into Sean's face. Unfortunately, something in the shaving cream irritated Sean's eyes, and for a short time, he couldn't see. Sean was treated by medical personnel, but the next morning his eyes were worse, and he was forced to sit out the next day's practice. Another issue that stemmed from the shaving cream pie incident was Sean's rapport with the media. Always a sensitive person, Sean was very shy around people, It took a long time for him to trust others, and anything he perceived to be a betrayal would end a relationship. Arrington had pushed the shaving cream pie into Sean's face right in front of a number of reporters, most of whom began laughing. Sean was humiliated and angry at the reporters for laughing at him. After that incident, 
Sean would rarely speak more than a few words to the media for the next couple of years. Every year in July, the NFL holds its mandatory NFL Rookie Symposium, which is intended to teach first-year players about problems they might encounter, and there is an emphasis on things that might happen off the field. In 2004, the symposium was held in San Diego. Sean attended the first day, but was absent for the second. When someone from the Redskins was finally able to get a hold of him, Sean explained that he had gone back to Miami to get his belongings out of his apartment because his lease was up. The team made arrangements to fly him back to the symposium in San Diego for the third day, but the NFL still fined him $25,000 for leaving. On July 22nd of 2004, Sean signed his first professional contract agreeing to a six-year deal with the Redskins worth $18.5 million. His contract included a $13.4 million signing bonus with incentives that could make the deal worth up to $40 million. One week later, Sean fired the agents who had negotiated the deal for him after other draft picks signed deals that he believed were better than his. Sean rehired his original agent, Drew Rosenhaus, and he would retain him for the remainder of his short career. Sean had legal problems as well. Around 2.30 in the morning on October 27th of 2004, Sean was driving home from a birthday party when he was pulled over in Fairfax County, Virginia. A Virginia state trooper pulled him over for going 82 in a 55-mile-per-hour zone. Sean was given a field sobriety test, which the trooper said he failed. The state trooper then asked him to take a breathalyzer test, which Sean refused to do. This prompted Sean's arrest per Virginia law. He was released after posting bond, and his court hearing was set for January. Coach Gibbs suspended Sean for the next game against Green Bay. On January 5th of 2005, Sean's trial for DUI and for refusing to take a breathalyzer test was held before Fairfax County District Court Judge Mitchell Mutnick. Two of Sean's teammates, wide receiver Lavernius Coles, and cornerback Fred Smoot testified on his behalf. When the video from the police car was shown, Judge Mutnick was very unhappy with the way the trooper treated Sean after he stopped him. The trooper had Sean wait outside in the 35-degree weather while he went back to his squad car for over 20 minutes. Sean did not have a jacket on. When the trooper returned, the video showed that Sean remained calm, but the trooper appeared upset with him, screaming at him the entire time, for no apparent reason. Judge Mutnick didn't bother to watch the entire video. He turned it off halfway through and asked both attorneys, do you need to see any more? Sean was acquitted of DUI. The judge, however, convicted Sean for failing to take a breathalyzer test, which Sean's attorney appealed and the case was ultimately dismissed. With his legal problems behind him, Sean could concentrate on the upcoming season and get prepared for training camp which would begin at the end of July. Just a month before he was to go to training camp, Sean turned himself in to Miami-Dade County Police as a person of interest for an assault that occurred the month prior, just a few miles from his home. Sean was eventually charged with aggravated assault with a firearm and simple battery, and then he was released on bond. Police claimed that Sean confronted two men whom he claimed stole his two ATVs. Police said that Sean pointed a gun at the men during the confrontation. The police report said that Sean left the scene but returned a short time later and attacked one of the men. 
a friend of Sean's allegedly chased the other man with a baseball bat. There were no injuries reported, but the fact that a gun was allegedly involved was a serious matter in the state of Florida, and Sean would have to answer for this incident in court. On June 24th of 2005, Sean was formally charged with aggravated assault with a firearm, a felony, and simple battery, a misdemeanor. Prosecutors claimed that he pointed a gun at two men whom he claimed stole his two ATVs. They said that Sean left the scene and then came back and hit one of the men. If convicted, Sean would be facing a sentence of 3 to 16 years in prison for the felony charge, not to mention a likely end to his football career. Edward Carhart, Sean's lead attorney, was considered one of the best trial lawyers in the state of Florida. He had previously worked in the prosecutor's office before becoming a defense attorney, and he had tried many high-profile cases as both a prosecutor and a defense attorney. Carhart told reporters that Sean had taken a polygraph test where he denied the charges and that he passed with flying colors. Sean was cooperative with authorities. He told them that he had been with a friend named Mike McFarlane, who lived in Perrine, Florida, just south of Palmetto Bay. The two of them were driving Sean's brand new ATVs, and when they were done, Sean left them at Mike's house before going home. When Mike woke up the next morning, the ATVs were gone. Mike tried to report the incident to police, but they wouldn't take his report because he wasn't the owner of the stolen property. While the prosecution claimed that Sean pulled a gun on the men and assaulted at least one of them, Sean and Mike McFarland's version of the story was much different. According to Sean, he and Mike went searching for the stolen ATVs and ended up on the wrong side of town and realized it wasn't safe for them to be there alone. According to Sean, he gathered more of his friends and then went back to the area where he believed his ATVs might be. This time, he said, a fight broke out between him, his friends, and some other guys. When the fight was over, Sean said he and his friends went back to Mike's house. Not long after they arrived, Sean said a vehicle drove by Mike's house slowly and then opened fire. He said bullets struck his car and Mike's home, but nobody was injured. Although his friend Mike's version of the story is a bit different from Sean's, he corroborated Sean's claim that the men with whom they'd fought did a drive-by shooting on his house afterward. Sean's trial had been rescheduled or postponed numerous times, some of which was caused by the lead prosecutor being fired due to controversial photos that were posted to his MySpace account. On June 2nd, however, Sean would receive some good news. The prosecution decided to drop the charges and settled on a plea agreement with Sean. In order to avoid a felony record and any prison time, Sean would be required to spend time working with charities and to donate money for scholarships to Florida schools. In fact, after the scare he had with the drive-by shooting, Sean had already begun working on his own with kids who were considered at risk in some schools in the area. Sean would speak with the children about staying in school and out of trouble. The NFL punished Sean for his off-the-field actions and fined him approximately $72,000. Out of all the darkness Sean was going through, there was one bright spot. On May 12, 2006, his fiancée, Jackie Garcia, gave birth to the couple's daughter, whom they also named Jackie. According to many people who knew him, the birth of his daughter changed Sean dramatically. People also said the drive-by shooting had a dramatic effect on him. 
Redskins defensive coordinator Greg Williams recalled that Sean went from someone who barely spoke to someone who couldn't stop smiling. It was obvious how happy he was being a father. Sean's friend, Mike McFarland, said, So the thing I want to get across is, of the wild and crazy things you may have heard about Sean, he made a complete 180 the moment baby Jackie was born. This was a God-fearing, family-loving man. And when I say family, I mean anybody who's close to him. If you weren't in his inner circle, you were just more or less an associate. This was a person who was very private in everything he did. He didn't express a lot of things to a lot of people. In 2006, expectations were high for the Redskins. After their strong finish the season before, they were predicted to make the playoffs and some were even picking them to make the Super Bowl for the first time since the 1991 season. But things did not work out well for the team that year. Although the Redskins didn't have a great season, Sean had an outstanding year and was selected for the Pro Bowl as an alternate. The 2007 season was looking like it might surpass 2006 as Sean's best yet. People were saying that he was one of the best safeties in the NFL. And then, in Week 10, in a loss against the Philadelphia Eagles, Sean injured his knee. It wasn't thought to be serious, but it would cause him to sit out for a few games. Nobody could have ever imagined that Sean's knee injury would be the catalyst to an event that would end his life. Ladies, who doesn't love discovering new beauty, wellness, and lifestyle products? I know I do. With the subscription to FabFitFun, each season, you can get full-sized, must-have products delivered right to your doorstep. FabFitFun offers the ability to customize each box to your specific needs. Whether you're mostly into fitness, beauty, or wellness, you can ensure that your box of products contains most of what you want. With a heavy focus on self-growth and self-care, FabFitFun goes beyond the luxury products that come inside of each thoughtfully curated box. With your subscription, you can also get access to FabFitFun TV, where you can view videos related to fitness, recipes, tutorials for some of the products that come inside their boxes, and more. Each FabFitFun box retails for just $49.99, but always has a value of over $200, not to mention the bonus perks I mentioned before. I'm so excited about discovering FabFitFun because their mission for women to focus more on self-growth and self-care is totally in line with what I've been working on achieving for myself. Women wear so many hats and walk around every day with overwhelming mental to-do lists. A FabFitFun subscription could be such a great start toward making self-care more of a priority in your life. If you want to start treating yourself or someone you love, go to FabFitFun.com and use coupon code MURDERISH for $10 off your first box. That's fabfitfun.com and use code MURDERISH for $10 off your first box. The week before Thanksgiving of 2007, Sean's mother, Donna, reported a break-in at Sean's Palmetto Bay home. Sean was out of town at the time with his team during the break-in. The Redskins were scheduled to play at Tampa Bay the Sunday after Thanksgiving on November 25th. Since Sean was injured, he asked Coach Gibbs for permission to go to Miami instead of traveling with the team to Tampa. He wanted to consult with a local doctor regarding his knee injury, and he also wanted to check on his house after the break-in. Since he wouldn't be able to play in the game, 
Coach Gibbs made the fateful decision to allow Sean to go home. Unbeknownst to everyone, Sean Taylor only had days to live. When a rented car stopped in the driveway of Sean's house on the evening of November 26, 2007, four men got out of the car. A fifth man stayed in the car acting as the getaway driver. The other four men walked toward the house. They knew that Sean wasn't home because he was out of town with the Redskins. Most of the men in the group had been invited guests at Sean's house before. The men entered the home through a side door. One of the men, who'd been to the house numerous times before, may have known ahead of time that the home's security system was broken. Sean had dogs, but since it was football season, they were being boarded or staying with someone else. The house was all theirs. The men knew the layout of the house. The week before they planned the robbery, two of the men had visited the house and pried open a window in one of the bedrooms of the home. They went through the house taking a few things. They had gotten into the safe in the master bedroom, where they knew large amounts of cash would likely be. Before they left, one of the men placed a knife on one of the beds, knowing they'd be returning to the house again before Sean got back into town. Soon after, Sean's mother Donna contacted police to report the break-in at her son's house. During their second robbery, the big one they'd carefully planned out, two of the men started walking around to different areas of the home. One of the men started climbing the stairs toward the master bedroom, where he thought that Sean kept a safe. The other three men stayed downstairs looking for valuables. As one of the men went upstairs to the master bedroom, he noticed that the bedroom door was shut, which was odd since no one was supposed to be home. He stopped for a moment to see if he could hear anything coming from the room. Then he kicked the door in. To his surprise, Standing in front of him in complete darkness was a large man who was holding something in his right hand. The perpetrator fired two shots into the darkness in the direction of the man standing in front of him. He then fled downstairs where the others were. Taking their friend's signal that something was wrong, the other three men, along with the gunman, ran toward the sliding glass door, which the gunman shot out to make their escape faster. They ran back to their getaway vehicle and took off, heading back to Fort Myers. Their master plan had failed miserably, scoring nothing from the attempted robbery. The gunman didn't know it at the time, but it was Sean Taylor who had been standing in the dark bedroom, and he was holding a machete, likely grabbing it after hearing people inside of his house. Back at Sean's house in Palmetto Bay, Jackie Garcia, his fiance, quickly dialed 911. She was holding their 18-month-old daughter in her arms as she called for help. Jackie was on the floor next to Sean, who was bleeding badly. Rivera's first bullet had hit the wall behind him, but the second bullet had hit Sean's femoral artery, causing him to lose blood quickly. When help arrived, it was apparent that Sean needed to be airlifted to Jackson Memorial Hospital, where surgery was immediately performed on him. He survived the surgery but was in critical condition due to losing so much blood, and doctors were also worried about the amount of time his brain had been without oxygen. Later that night, however, Sean's condition started to improve. Mostly unresponsive, as he laid in his hospital bed, Sean responded to a doctor who had asked him to squeeze his hand. Hope immediately surged through family and friends waiting at the hospital. 
thinking that Sean might be okay. Players and officials from the Washington Redskins were getting ready to fly to Miami the next morning to be with their teammate, but they would never take those flights. Early the next morning, on November 27th, without ever regaining consciousness, the 24-year-old star football player took his last breath. Sean Taylor, free safety for the Washington Redskins, was dead. The doctor said that if the bullet had hit one millimeter to the right, or one millimeter to the left, Sean's femoral artery would not have been severed and he would have had a chance of surviving. Upon hearing the horrible news that Sean had died, His family was in shock. They had no idea he was even in Miami. They weren't aware that Sean had requested to come home briefly due to his knee injury and also to check on his house after the break-in. His family believed that he was traveling with the Redskins for the game in Tampa that Sunday. In fact, Sean's dad, Pete, was watching the game on TV, wondering if his son was going to play that day. As the game went on for a bit, Pete realized that Sean was not playing so he started looking on the sidelines to see if he could spot him. The two of them had last talked on Thanksgiving night, and Sean hadn't mentioned anything about coming to Miami. Sean's sister, Jasmine Taylor, said, I was at my grandmother's house. I was actually sleeping as it was very early in the morning. I got a text from my dad. It was brief and right to the point. Sean has been shot. Everything will be okay. So I find my mom, and she's on the phone with my dad. Upon hearing the terrible news, Redskins coach Greg Williams said, I was the very first person they called from the organization. They called and woke me up that night. In fact, they weren't able to get a hold of anyone else. When he passed that morning, I cried like a little baby. While I was sitting in the corner of my room, I couldn't help but to think about one of the famous sayings Sean used when he and I would have our moments of controversy or confrontation on the sidelines. Hey coach, hey. Get on to the next play. Get on to the next play. Get off my back and get on to the next play. Sean's father, Pete, had the unenviable task of making a public statement to the media regarding his son's death. Outside the hospital, he made this short statement. It is with deep regret that a young man had to come to his end so soon. Many of his fans loved him because the way he played football. Many of his opponents feared him the way he approached the game. Others misunderstood him. Many appreciated him and his family loved him. Pete also asked whoever was involved with Sean's murder to turn themselves in, saying, You know who you are. If you did it, turn yourself in. Vengeance is not mine, it's God's. He holds that in his hands. Within hours of Sean's death, before any of the facts were confirmed, the media began reporting with much speculation regarding how and why Sean was killed. Several sports writers painted Sean as someone who lived the lifestyle of a criminal. Some even seemed to blame him for his own death. One sports writer said that Sean grew up in and embraced a violent world. Others, however, are adamant that Sean Taylor did not embrace or grow up in a violent world and claim the direct opposite was true. Sean's supporters say he grew up in a middle-class neighborhood with a father who was a police chief. Sean went to a prestigious prep school and was widely thought of as a nice kid growing up. Many of the people who knew him best insist that while Sean had some trouble with the law as a young adult, 
He had completely turned his life around after the drive-by shooting and, most of all, the birth of his daughter. After Sean's death, the Redskins' fan base showed support for their beloved player. Fans showed up in droves at FedEx Stadium in Washington, D.C., wearing Sean's number 21 on their jerseys. Despite some of the negative press Sean received after death, those who knew him well painted a much different picture of him. Redskins and Miami Hurricanes teammate Santana Moss said after Sean's death, I think it's disgraceful that because of some of the things he went through earlier in his life, everybody tried to label him as that guy. I didn't know him back then, but when you met him, you're like, come on, that's not the guy they portrayed him as. Redskins teammate Chris Samuels said, what does Sean's past have to do with what happened here? Sean was in bed by 9 o'clock that night with his family, knowing he had to get up the next day to get treatment on his knee. I am telling you, Sean was not a thug. He was a victim in his own bedroom. That's what we need to focus on. How in this great country can a man be asleep in his own bedroom, get shot, and in the media, it's like he did something wrong to deserve this? On Thursday, November 29th, Clinton Portis and Santana Moss, Sean's two closest friends on the team, spoke to the media for the first time since his death. Moss told the media, The best way I know how to handle the situation is the way Sean would have handled it. He would have mourned for the moment that we had to mourn, but he would have went out there and laced them up and played like no other. Moss also said that Sean had a different kind of glow about him the week before he died, wondering if maybe his friend knew something was going to happen. Moss said, It was unusual for Sean. I mean, he was in high spirits. It was almost like when it happened, I thought back on those couple of days, and it was something like it was a message right then and there that we didn't see at the time. You never know. Portis considered wearing Sean's number 21 jersey for the upcoming game on Sunday, but ultimately decided against it, saying, Time after time, I always told you that he was the best player I've ever seen. For me to put that jersey on, I can't live up to those expectations. I can't be Sean Taylor, so I wouldn't even try. Although the Redskins were mourning the loss of their beloved friend and teammate, the game had to go on. On Sunday, December 2nd, the Redskins hosted the Buffalo Bills at FedEx Stadium in Landover, Maryland, their first game since Sean's death. The team handed out white towels to fans with Sean's number on them to honor him. Black draping was hung above the entrance of the stadium. Redskins players all wore patches with Sean's number on their jerseys. All NFL teams that day wore number 21 stickers on their helmets to honor Sean. The Redskins marching band wore black hats and their instruments were covered with black sleeves. On Buffalo's first offensive play, the Redskins only sent 10 men out onto the field, leaving one spot vacant for their fallen teammate. The announcers noticed it immediately, saying Washington has only 10 players on defense. Reed Doty is the guy who's expected to replace Sean Taylor in the lineup. He's on the sidelines. The crowd roared and waved the special towels they had been given. Portis, Sean's best friend on the team, lifted up his jersey after scoring a touchdown, showing the hometown fans that he was wearing a Sean Taylor t-shirt underneath. The fans loved it. The Redskins ended up losing the game. Fred Smoot, one of Sean's closest friends on the team, remained on the field, laying on the grass for several minutes after the game was over, 
wanting to be left alone in his thoughts about the loss of his friend. When asked later what he was thinking about while he was lying there, he said that I let my man down. We were so close, and I let my man down. Smoot also said that during the game, he caught himself looking back at the area where Sean should have been playing his safety position until he remembered that he was gone. He said, I didn't show up to play this game. I showed up for a tribute for my friend to send him out right, and we found a way to mess it up. With four games left in the regular season and their best defensive player gone, the Redskins' chance at making it to the playoffs was fading. But before they could continue working toward the playoffs, the team had a funeral to attend. On Monday, December 3rd, Sean's memorial service was held at Farmed Arena in Florida International University in Miami. The entire Washington Redskins team and many other employees of the organization attended. In all, over 3,000 people paid their respects to the 24-year-old football player who had so much promise. Among those who spoke at Sean's service were Redskins coach Joe Gibbs, Redskins teammate Clinton Portis, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, Jackie Garcia's sister Caroline, and Sean's younger sister Jasmine, whose speech brought everyone to tears. Jasmine said during her speech, I just want to see his smile one more time. He had the best smile in the world. Those who spoke talked about Sean as a player, a person, a family member, and a friend. Coach Gibbs talked about Sean as a man of faith. Others talked about the negative media portrayal of Sean, seemingly blaming him for his own murder. Florida City Mayor Otis Wallace, a friend of the family, said during his speech, For those who took the liberty of recklessly speculating that this young man's death was caused by the way he lived, all I can say is they should be ashamed. The mayor received a standing ovation after his speech. Sean Taylor, forever 24 years young, was laid to rest at Caballero Rivero, Woodlawn South, and Woodlawn Park Cemetery. After the loss to Buffalo, the week after Sean's death, the Redskins' record was 5-7. and seven. Their playoff hopes were slim at best. They had lost four games in a row. The team got together for a players-only meeting, which helped to strengthen the resolve of the team. They went on to win their last five games, finishing the season 10-6 and and making it to the playoffs. The team, however, would go on to lose to the Seattle Seahawks 35-14 in a game that would end their hopes of making it to the Super Bowl that year. When police began investigating Sean's murder, they had virtually no leads. The investigation would have to start from scratch. Police started by looking into the men from West Perrine who had stolen Sean's ATVs and who had shot up Sean's vehicle and Mike McFarland's house. That lead, however, didn't go anywhere. Police were informed by Sean's fiancée, Jackie, of a break-in that occurred on November 18th at Sean's house. This would be a lead worth looking into. During the robbery, the burglars had pried open a window to get into the house. Cash and football memorabilia were stolen, and a kitchen knife was left on a bed. Sean's mother, Donna, had gone by Sean's house while he was out of town and discovered that it had been broken into. Sasha and Jamal Johnson, Sean's younger siblings, had thrown a party at Sean's house during the Thanksgiving holiday. There was speculation that someone involved in the murder may have been at the party 
but there were conflicting stories. Some family members thought there were way too many people coming in and out of the house, particularly while Sean was gone. Jackie said that the number of people Sean's siblings were bringing into the home was becoming an issue, and that Sean was attempting to address it with them before he died. Brian Proctor, who did handyman work for Sean, told detectives that after the first break-in on November 18th, all the family members agreed that no one would be staying at the house because they did not feel safe. A family member said that Sasha Johnson was too afraid to stay at the house after the break-in. When detectives spoke with Sean's mother, Donna, she said to them that she felt that something was going to happen in that residence eventually. She mentioned the broken security system and that Sean kept meaning to get it fixed but had not done so yet. On November 30th, police would receive a huge break in the case. An anonymous tip came in giving police information regarding where they could find the men who murdered Sean. The tip led to several arrests. Arrested in Fort Myers on that day were four men named Eric Rivera, Venja Hunt, Jason Mitchell, and Charles Wardlow. Police believed at the time that only four suspects were involved in the crime and that they had apprehended all of them. When questioned, Rivera made a full confession to the crime, including admitting that he was the shooter. 18-year-old Charles Wardlow had been to the house before. His cousin, Christopher Devin Wardlow, was dating Sasha Johnson, Sean Taylor's younger sister. Sasha had celebrated her birthday at Sean's home the month before the robbery. Sasha's boyfriend, Devin, attended the party, and he brought Charles Wardlow with him. The so-called mastermind of the operation was 19-year-old Jason Mitchell. Mitchell lived near Sasha in Fort Myers. Mitchell and Charles Wardlow had known Sasha for years, as they had all attended Dunbar High School in Fort Myers. Mitchell had also been to the house numerous times before. Sean had hired him to do chores so he could earn extra money. Mitchell had also been invited to Sasha's birthday party at Sean's house the month before. Some of Sasha's friends, Mitchell among them, had been hired by Sean to clean the pool before the birthday party, and he paid them $300 for their efforts. At Sasha's birthday party in October of 2007, Wardlow and Mitchell saw how generous Sean was with his money. Both Sasha and her younger brother Jamal showed off the bags of cash they were given by their older brother. This gave Wardlow and Mitchell the idea that the house must have a lot of cash laying around as well as valuables. It was then that they developed a plan to rob Sean's house. Rivera, Hunt, Wardlow, and Mitchell were charged with felony second-degree murder, armed burglary, and home invasion robbery with a firearm. If convicted, they all faced a maximum sentence of life in prison. Eventually, the charges were increased to first-degree felony murder and armed burglary. Along with that came the possibility of an elevated sentence of death. All four men had previous criminal records, including Grand Theft Auto for Wardlow and cocaine and methamphetamine trafficking for Rivera. On Tuesday, December 4th, all four men were indicted by a grand jury, and a judge ordered them held without bail. It wouldn't take long for police to catch up with a fifth suspect named Timothy Brown. Once he was apprehended, Brown was charged along with his four co-conspirators. On May 12th, prosecutors announced that Eric Rivera would not be eligible for the death penalty because of his age when the crime was committed. Three days later, 
Venja Hunt accepted a plea deal to serve 29 years in exchange for his testimony against the other four defendants. Hunt's lawyer said that his client did drive the vehicle as he was the only one of the five men who had a driver's license. His attorney said that Hunt stayed in the car the entire time, never entered the house, and didn't even know the others were going to Miami to rob anyone. In April of 2009, however, Hunt tried to change his guilty plea to not guilty and asked for a new attorney. A few months later, in August, Hunt changed his mind again and decided to stick with his original plea deal. He would be formally sentenced at a later date. The original date for the beginning of the trials for the other four men had been scheduled for April of 2008, but defense attorneys requested a continuance because that date would not give them enough time to prepare. The court rescheduled the trial for June of 2009, over a year later. More and more delays followed until Eric Rivera, the first defendant, was finally set to stand trial on April 16th of 2012, four long years after the original trial date. However, a month before he was set to stand trial, Rivera fired his attorney, and his trial was pushed out to October of 2013. Since Rivera was to be tried first, that meant the trials for Mitchell, Wardlow, and Brown would all have to be moved back as well. Reed Rubin, considered one of the best trial prosecutors in Florida, would be the lead prosecutor for the state attorney in Rivera's trial. Penny Brill, another experienced and well-respected lawyer, would also be on the team. The prosecution had a fairly strong case against Rivera. They had a videotaped confession. Rivera, however, claimed that his confession was coerced, but the videotape did not appear to support that. In his confession, he described how the burglary was supposed to go down and how they didn't know anyone was home. He described how he shot at Sean when he saw him standing in the bedroom after kicking in the door, and then how everyone ran to the car and took off. Rivera told detectives that he had wrapped the gun in a sock and thrown it into the Everglades off Alligator Alley. He said that all five of the men burned their clothes afterward in order to get rid of evidence. Rivera's behavior after the robbery didn't help his case. He posted pictures on his MySpace page after the crime. The pictures were of him on his bed with $100 bills all over his body and waving a wad of cash like a fan. Cell phone records showed calls from phones of two of the defendants, including Rivera, coming from an area near Sean's home shortly after the murder. The first prosecution witness was Sean's ex-fiance, Jackie Garcia, now Jackie Garcia Haley. Jackie gave emotionally charged testimony of the night that Sean was killed. After Sean was shot and the burglars had run away, Jackie told the jury, I got a towel and tried to stop the bleeding. I ran outside and screamed for help. I told them someone was dying to please hurry. The next witness was Sean's sister, Sasha Johnson. She testified that she knew all of the defendants except for Timothy Brown. Rivera had played Little League football for a team coached by Sasha's father and went to high school with Wardlow and Mitchell. Wardlow had a child with Hunt's sister. Sasha confirmed that Rivera, to her knowledge, had never been to Sean's house and that he didn't have permission to be at Sean's house at any time in the past. Arielle Boston, an 18-year-old who lived near Jason Mitchell, testified that on the night that Sean was murdered, Rivera, Hunt, Wardlow, and Mitchell came to her house. 
She said they left burglary tools, which her uncle disposed of, telling her that she could get into trouble if they were found inside her home. Boston said that she was unaware at the time that the four men were suspects in Sean's murder. At Sean's house, police found shoe prints outside the gate and on the bedroom door that Rivera had allegedly kicked in. The prints were from a pair of Nike shocks that were consistent with shoes that Rivera owned. In a rare move, Rivera took the stand in his own defense, although he didn't seem to do himself any favors. Rivera said he stayed in the car the entire time. Although he confessed to police that he was the shooter on the stand, he denied being the shooter. Instead, he pointed the finger at Venja Hunt. As for his confession, he claimed it was coerced and inaccurate. He also claimed that he didn't even own a pair of Nike shocks, even though investigators found a pair of the shoes in his home that were the same size as those that made the shoe prints on Sean's bedroom door. After four days of deliberation, on November 4th of 2013, the jury found Rivera guilty of second-degree murder and armed robbery. Surprisingly, they didn't find him guilty of having the gun in Sean's murder. In January of 2014, Miami-Dade Circuit Court Judge Dennis Murphy sentenced Rivera to 57 and a half years in prison. Next up was Jason Mitchell. Mitchell, like Rivera, had also signed a sworn confession. Reed Rubin again led the prosecution, this time assisted by Marie Mato. Cell phone records showed that Mitchell had been near Sean's home right around the time he was shot and then had gone back to Fort Myers right after. Reuben told jurors that Mitchell had actually stayed at Sean's house for several nights when Sean wasn't there, as a guest of Sasha and her boyfriend. Reuben said that Mitchell saw how generous Sean was with his family and friends and wanted it for himself. He said that Mitchell decided that he was going to find that pot of gold in Sean Taylor's house. Sean Taylor was a giving man. He died because of greed. That's what this case is about, greed and betrayal. Rubin told the jury that under Florida's felony murder law that all five defendants must be treated like they were the shooter. Rubin told the jury he must be treated like he's the person who shot Sean Taylor if he was one of the people there committing the burglary. Unlike Rivera, Mitchell did not testify in his own behalf. His attorney told the jury that if they did convict his client, they should do so under simple burglary instead of armed burglary and felony murder because Mitchell did not have a gun and he was not the shooter. The jury, however, wasn't swayed. On June 10th of 2014, Mitchell was convicted. Judge Dennis Murphy gave Mitchell, who was an adult at the time of the murder, the mandatory sentence of life in prison. Charles Wardlow was the next to go on trial. His defense attorney told the jury that his client said he heard a noise while the men were in Sean's house and tried to get them to call off the burglary. He said that Eric Rivera said he was the one who made the noise, and they continued looking for valuables. On April 1st of 2015, on what would have been Sean Taylor's 32nd birthday, Charles Wardlow was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. One week later, on April 8th of 2015, the fifth and final defendant, Timothy Brown, agreed to a plea deal for a sentence of 18 years in prison. On June 22 of 2015, Venja Hunt, who had agreed to a plea deal in 2008, was officially sentenced to 29 years in prison. On May 23, 2018, 
Eric Rivera was back in court due to a change in Florida's juvenile laws. His attorney asked the judge to shorten his sentence due to the new law and because Brown and Wardlow got shorter sentences than his client. Judge Murphy denied decreasing his sentence but allowed Rivera another chance to ask for a reduced sentence in four years. With the sentencing of all five perpetrators, it seemed some sense of justice had been served. Sean Taylor became the only player to be voted to the Pro Bowl after his death, being named the starting free safety for the NFC team in January of 2008. Just as the Redskins did in their first game after his death, the NFC defense played their first snap with only 10 men to honor Sean. Three of Sean's teammates, who were also named to the Pro Bowl, tight end Chris Cooley, left tackle Chris Samuels, and long snapper Ethan Albright, all wore number 21 jerseys during the game to honor their fallen teammate. The Redskins have officially retired only one number in their long storied history, number 33, that of legendary Sammy Baugh, who played quarterback from 1937 to 1952. However, the team has several unofficially retired jerseys that, although not technically retired, will never be given out again. After Sean's death, his number 21 was added to that list. The Redskins painted Sean's number 21 on the playing field, at the parking lot entrance, and in their ring of fame. The team also encased Sean's locker in plexiglass, and left it just the way it was after Sean had last used it. The organization established a trust fund for baby Jackie, with owner Dan Snyder personally donating $500,000. On November 3, 2008, the Pop Warner Bowl, the championship game for the Greater Miami Pop Warner Football League, the league Sean played in as a child, officially changed its name to the annual Sean Taylor Classic. On November 30, 2008, Sean was posthumously inducted into the Washington Redskins Ring of Fame, one of only 51 members of the organization, which includes players, coaches, and owners. On October 13th of 2017, Sean was inducted into the University of Miami Ring of Honor. His daughter Jackie, 11 years old at the time, gave the acceptance speech for her father. According to those who attended, she brought the audience to tears with the words she spoke about her late father whom she would never get to know. Sean Taylor died without leaving a will, forcing his $5.8 million estate into probate. The court awarded the bulk of his estate to his daughter Jackie. His older sister, Monica, had been named beneficiary of his $650,000 life insurance policy from the NFL. Pete Taylor, who shared a joint bank account with his son, was rewarded the remaining balance in the account, which amounted to about $328,000. Pete's fiancée, Donna, Sean's grandmother, great-grandmother, and the remainder of his siblings didn't get anything. Sean had bought his mother a home when he got to the NFL, but she didn't make enough money from her job as a substitute teacher to afford the property taxes and homeowners association fees. Donna was in danger of losing her home, which she shared with her son Jamal, her daughter Sasha, and Sasha's baby Christopher. Sean's former Redskins teammates came to Donna's aid and took up a collection to help her. The money collected paid all of Donna's bills for a while, but because her job still didn't pay much, the bills continued to pile up. Sean's house in Palmetto Bay sat empty for years until the bank eventually foreclosed on it. The home sold for 460000 
Sean had originally paid $900,000 for it. Today, Sean's older sister, Monica, is a special needs teacher and lives in Dade, Florida. His sister, Sasha Johnson, coaches cheerleading for a Pop Warner League and works in after-school programs at a Miami-area elementary school. Sean's brother, Joseph Taylor, played basketball at Florida Memorial University and now works as a probation officer with the Miami-Dade Police Department. Sean's sister, Jasmine Taylor, attended Florida A&M for nursing. Sean's youngest sibling, Gabriel Taylor, is a senior at Gulliver Prep, and he's a standout football and basketball player just like his older brother. Gabriel is being recruited by colleges all over the country. In November of 2010, Sean's ex-fiancé, Jackie Garcia, married Shay Haley of the experimental hip-hop and rock group NERD. It might be difficult to understand how much an event like Sean Taylor's death can mean for those who are not sports fans or football fans or even Washington Redskins fans. Washington has always been a Redskins town, even though the team has had little success since Joe Gibbs retired for the first time in 1992. The Redskins aren't just a team in the D.C. area. They are the team in the D.C. area. The success of the team in the 1970s, and particularly in the 1980s and early 1990s, is unmatched in the franchise's 87-year history. Julian Kimball put it best in a Sports Blog Nation article entitled, Sean Taylor Gave a Generation of Washington Fans a Reason to Love Football. A look back on the 10th anniversary of Taylor's death, In the article from November of 2017, Julian Kimball wrote, Taylor is a tie that binds the oldest millennials with those whose earliest memories of football may very well include Taylor damn near bisecting opposing players just as he did Frampton. For Washington football fans of that generation, Taylor finally gave them a star who was theirs. No longer would they have to enviously listen to their parents tell stories of Riggins and Thiesman. Daryl Green was the great who spanned generations in his 20-year career with the team. But Taylor, bone-crushing Taylor, was theirs. Our generation has a certain appreciation for Sean Taylor, for better and for worse. Because we know people similar to him. We have friends who remind us of him. Or we are that friend. While he was standoffish with the media, we felt we knew him. And because we're part of the same generation, We aren't so far removed from our youth that we've forgotten what it's like to make poor decisions that aren't representative of our character, what it's like to learn from those moments. During Sean Taylor's last interview in September of 2007, shortly before he died, he spoke about the joy that his daughter Jackie had brought to him. As a player who rarely gave interviews due to his distrust of the media, Sean showed a different side of himself telling the sports reporter about how he wanted his daughter to have a better life than his. Sean also mentioned how he didn't fear dying. During the interview, Sean said, You can't be scared of death. When that time comes, it comes. You never see a person who has lived their life to the fullest. They sometimes feel sorry for like a child, maybe, that didn't get a chance to do some of the things they thought that child might have had a chance to do in life. I've been blessed. God's looked out for me, so I'm happy.
thanks so much for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways to support it. You can hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a rating and review in your favorite podcast listening app. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by BetterHelp and FabFitFun. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. If you'd like to go a step further, you can support the show through Patreon. Head over to patreon.com murderish for more details. If you want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish, head over to my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. That's murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. In order to tell the true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources, including but not limited to news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather the information I draw from to help tell these stories. I want to say thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found in episode notes, which are accessible from any podcast player. I'm currently having a website built. When it's done, episode source material and all kinds of other show information can be found there. If you have any comments or questions, email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Murderish researcher Steve Field. Stay tuned for the third and final episode in my sports-related murder series, which will drop two weeks from the date of this recording. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember... Listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer, it just means you're murder-ish.